This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Show podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month, they're going to sell a different patch, and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership, and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 379 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and it is my absolute honor to welcome this week, Nims Die. Now, we recorded this a few weeks ago, but NIMS has a brand new book coming out, which will be released today when I put this out, which is called Beyond Possible. A background on NIMS, he was a Nepalese Gurkha serving with the British Army, then transitioned to the SBS, Special Boat Service, one of the most elite fighting organizations on the planet, and then transitioned to becoming an incredibly elite mountain climber, not only climbing 14 of the highest peaks in record-breaking time, but also facilitating multiple rescues as well. So I can't stress how much depth there is to Nims's story, how much you need to buy his book as well. But I'm so, so honored that I was one of the first people to get the interview prior to the book coming out. Now, before we get to that interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for people to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who hasn't heard them yet. So with that being said, I introduce to you 
Nims Die. Enjoy. All right, so Nims, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I have uh, been following you now for a couple of years, I think, since uh, Eric Donahoe introduced us. But uh, I think now is the perfect time with the book being ready to be released. Hey, buddy. Yeah, so good to obviously, you know, uh, you know, glad to be having this conversation and obviously glad to see you a bit earlier on this in Skype as well. James, yeah, it's uh, it's been quite a while that, you know, Obviously, Eric has been obviously in Nepal with us and all that. But yeah, great to be connected, Paul. Absolutely. All right. Well, first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Well, right now I am at my home in Hampshire and uh, I've just been back here uh, basically for the book launch. Uh, So yeah. And that's actually in Nepal? No, it's in Hampshire in England, buddy. uh, Oh. (laughs) Yeah, the door said. I wish I was in Nepal, you know. Okay. But I got to be here for obviously you know you know various interviews and stuff for obviously the book, uh, Beyond Possible. And uh, to be fair, mate, and I'm really excited and all that. So yeah, it's all good thing, I suppose. Beautiful. Well, yeah, the publisher was was kind enough to send me a copy, and we're definitely going to talk about that. But it was a, it was a great read, just to let you know ahead of time. Um, so I want to start chronologically. So. Where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Okay. So I was born in western part of Nepal in a very remote area. Um, you know, we had a really humble upbringing um, in my family. Um, obviously, we got mom and dad. Um, mom sadly passed away a couple of months ago, but then we had five siblings. Uh, four son and one daughter, which is my sister Anita, and uh, yeah, three of us are in the Gurkhas. Uh, one of my brother is, uh, you know, he just got retired as a as a teacher in Nepal. So yeah, that's that's us. Oh, I'm sorry to hear about your mother for a start. Hey, uh, thank you. It's okay. So and then, from what I understand, so your your there's an age gap between you and your older brothers. Is that right? Yeah, massively. So, you know, as I just said earlier, um, we're very poor at the start. You know, my mom and dad, you know, they eloped to get married, which was at that point um, in Nepal was quite a, a big crime. So they had nothing, you know, obviously they used to work in others' farm and uh, and eventually, obviously, my brothers were born. Um, and once they got into the Gurkhas, um so obviously they sent me and my sister Anita to to better school. We moved to Chitwan, which is the most flat and warm part of the country. Uh, but yeah, there is gap between me and my you know elder brother is eighteen and a half year old. So that's why you know they could you know send us to you know goody school and all that once they joined the Gurkhas. If that you know makes sense. No, absolutely. So um, for people listening, obviously being British, I'm a little bit more of the you know a little more aware of the Gurkhas, but. Tell me about the history of the Gurkhas, how they came about with their interaction with the British armies. I think it's a pretty fascinating story. Yeah, so somewhere around like, you know, 205 years ago, uh, when, you know, the British Empire was in India trying to take over the world, uh, they, you know, of course, Nepal being a neighboring country, they tried to take over Nepal. Uh, But what happened was, 
you know, neither the British could, you know, win or neither the Nepalese, you know, um, would give up. So, you know, the British were really, really impressed by the bravery of the, of the, of the Nepalese people. And what they said at that point was, okay, we're not going to attack you anymore. Uh, because one of their general was killed as well in this battle. So, um, uh, we're not going to attack you more guys, but can we have, you know, you know, your guys, you know, fighting for us? And the, the king of Nepal at that point, um, was, of course, you know, he had too much problem with, you know, fighting against obviously this massive power. So he said, of course, we can, you know, we can partner. But since and then, um, the Gurkhas, um, have been serving with the British for, 205 years now uh we have been you know with them throughout this whole journey you know second world war and and all the iraq afghanistan um you know libya and all that kind of stuff um so yeah and just to give you an idea what the selection of a gag has is like in nepal is um you know in a year when I went for the selection there were like 32,000 young men um you know trying for it and only 320 makes it. So it's a very, very tough selection in, in Nepal. That's amazing. So one in, one in a thousand chance of basically getting a spot. <laughs> yeah, pretty much like that. So staying with the Gurkhas just for a second, because as a Brit, you know, one thing that we always hear is the courage, you know, and there, there are, you know, numerous stories of, uh, you know, Gurkha heroism. So with that long history, what do you attribute that courage too as far as you know the the culture and the the beliefs of the nepalese people um uh, i think for me um you know when people ask me you know what's you know who are you i always say you know i'm nimistai i was born in nepal but i was raised in the garakas and united kingdom special forces and of course you know i was made in in the mountains but coming that, you know, I spent 16 years in the British military and, and what does Gurkha means to me is, um, and it's in my bone, I think. Um, and, and what does Gurkha stand for in across the world is, as you said, uh, James is for bravery and also loyalty. Um, and, you know, we live with the motto, you know, it's better to die than to be a coward. Um, and all that. So yeah, it's very, proud to be part of that family uh, but you know that respect is earned though absolutely well um i always ask about you know athletics and, and being you know a sportsman when you're younger as you mentioned um the chitwan area was flat so so am i right in understanding that you weren't really climbing when you were young May i only started climbing when i was 29 year old nearly 30 but yeah so yeah and it was only in december 2012 um and as you said, Chris, you know, I had no idea to, to climbing. I hadn't even trek at all before. Um, so, yeah, it was completely, you know, different kind of, you know, dynamics to who I am now, to how my, you know, childhood was. Uh, yeah. Beautiful. So then tell me about your journey in martial arts, because I know that was a pretty powerful element. Yeah, of course, you know, when I was in, in, in the kid, you know, I was put into this boarding school and, you know, Nepal being a third world country, you know, there are like, of course, you know, nasty things happens, you know, and there's loads of, you know, like school bullies and all that. And I was pretty young um, and all that. But um, I remember in, in, the, in year seven, um, I started learning, you know, kickboxing uh, and uh, pretty soon, you know, I started, you know, 
fighting for the the regional championship um, and all that. So obviously all those you know bullies and all that didn't happen after that. Uh, but yeah, all good. You know, I was I have always been sportive. You know, when I was like not studying in Nepal, you get only one day as a weekend. You get only Saturday off. So in Saturday, I used to like explore the jungle of Chitwan. It's a massive jungle. I used to go into the to the river, like really small river. Obviously, it's not massive river. You know, to those who are listening, because I was a little, little kid. But I used to go and look for the crabs, and you know. I was that much motivated that I would turn every rocks in that river uh, and, you know, you know, search for, you know, those crabs and, and come back home. And I used to cook those crab uh, with, with, with mum. Um, and of course, you know, we used to obviously eat and all that. So it's, it's a very humble um, upbringing, uh, Barry, if I'm honest. Yeah, well, one thing that really struck me, and this this struck me as well, the reason why you transition out of the SBS, but you mentioned early in the book, about um you know a lot of people would would give their money to the temples but you actually would like to to give it directly to the people that you saw that needed it so where where did that kindness and compassion come is is that a a a national thing or was that more from your parents specifically uh i think i don't know mate to be honest somehow early even early early in my life nobody taught me um nobody said anything but i wasn't a religious person since i was a kid you know, because, you know, I kind of, you know, even in very young age, I kind of, you know, started believing in what I, I see. Um, and, and you know, for me, like a lot of, you know, you know, Nepalese people, they go to the temple and they, you know, donate money to the mountain god, which is the statue. You know, so not the mount, the, the, the Hindu gods, you know, the, which is the statues. But then I feel that's a bit pointless, you know, rather than giving that money to the statues and all that and somebody like taking that, you don't know where that money goes. And I think it would make an absolute sense if you donate that money to the needy people like if there's an orphan, you know, um, and if there's someone, you know, you know, disabled people or if there's someone who's really poor and I still remember, um, I, I didn't have much in my wallet, to be honest, because we we're still like that. But then I was um, I saw this guy who was really, really he was poorer than us. Um, and uh, I asked him, you know, does he have kids? And he said, yes. Um, and um, I just emptied my wallet and I just said, yeah, go. And, you know, in Nepal, you know, you don't really um, you know, have enough money to buy good food. So I said, you know, like, here's your money. Don't spend that on alcohol. Make sure, you know, you, you know, that's that's been you know, this out to, to the family. So I've been always been like that somehow. Um, yeah. Beautiful. Well, I mean, obviously that 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 comes out again later in the story. Um, so just to kind of recap, so your older brothers went in the Gurkhas that allowed you to have the education that you had. So tell me about your journey then into the Gurkhas. Yeah. So I was in obviously in this um, in a boarding school in a hostel. It really strict regime and. Um, yeah, you are not allowed to get out of the compound and all that. But what I used to do is I used to wake up about like two o'clock in the you know in the morning, and I used to go for a run. You know, sometimes in you know, a twenty k, thirty k, and I used to be back. You know, just before like you know six, you know, a.m. in the morning when everybody's awake. I used to pretend I'm still sleeping. No one would know that I have been up out. You know, running with um, putting some you know like metal rods in my in my in my socks as well, trying to make you know a bit you know hard for training. Because you know we didn't have any weights or anything, so I just you know sew metal rock um, metal rods bar in, into my socks, and I was doing that kind of training. 
But yeah, you know, I felt my first selection to the Gaikas, um, just because you know the, the Gallawala who you know what Gallawala is, you know, he is a very old retired, um, in old school, you know, expensive Gaika guy, and you know if he doesn't like you, he doesn't like you. So I fell for the first time, and I only made it on the second attempt. Um, but for me, since I was a kid, I didn't want it to be anything else. I didn't want, I was really good in school, really good as in like, you know, I used to be in, in top three, um, in terms of whole, you know, uh, mark, marking system. But, you know, my dream was only to be a Gaika. So I was just you know, secretly training for that and eventually I made it, buddy. So what do you think it was though that, that gave you that intrinsic determination to get to, to be the only child in that school that woke up at two in the morning, sewed steel rods to their socks and went for a 20 or 30k run. I think what I had in me is if I really want something and if I really, you know, like dream of being something, you know, I've always put my heart, soul and, you know, dedication to that. And I think that's who I am, you know. And then that's not only from, you know, joining the Gurkhas, but that's also like, you know, you know, there are a few stories which I have mentioned on the book Beyond Possible. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's kind of you know, it's in, the, in the blood as well. But why I wanted so much to be a Gurkha, it was purely because my dad was in the, in the Gurkhas and my you know, two brothers were in the Gurkhas. And, when, and whenever they come home, um, I kind of like their like military style, you know. <laughs> really smart, you know, everybody was well, you know, like respecting them. And then, you know, Gurkha was quite a big thing in, in, in our village. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to be part of that. Yeah, well, that's understandable. Absolutely. You had some, some role models coming home. So what was your journey like then? There you are in Nepal, you know, you finally get a place in the Gurkhas and now you fly off to the UK, a very different country than Nepal. Yeah, but you know, like when you are in Nepal, when people talk about, you know, United Kingdom, England, you know, you think of in you know, a Big Ben, you know, London Eye, Buckingham Palace. Uh, so I was expecting that. But what happened was when we land, it was raining sideways in London Heathrow. Then we were like soaked into this bus. And uh, after driving like almost 10 hours, we got into this place called Catrick, which is really up north of the England. And... Uh, we came out and look around. The weather was absolutely miserable. Haven't seen anywhere where the rain come like you know from from like sideways, buddy. <laughs> and yeah, and I was like, there's only a couple of houses you can see, and there were more sheep. So I was like, well, actually, this is you know almost as you know as worse as Nepal. You know, I was like, yeah, but you know, of course, um, that was it. Um, and eventually, you know, we were really. You know, went into a strict regime of the training with the Gaikas, nine months infantry training. Um, yeah, so it, it was a bit of cultural shock, to be honest, but, you know, you got to adapt. So it was, hey, hey. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, if, you, if you're in a mountainous region of Nepal, like, you know, f f so far up the mountain, I can see how it would be warm. But if you're from a, a more tropical jungle-like part of Nepal, yeah. then it was probably pretty miserable. <laughs> Oh, it was like, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, the 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 Gurkhas are known, obviously, for the kukuri knife, the the kind of L, the boomerang shaped knife, almost. Um, is yeah. that something that you ceremoniously get when you graduate the Gurkhas, or you know, when when do you get that, or do you still even get that anymore? Yes, buddy. Whenever you pass the selection for the bigger of Gurkhas, you are given that on your graduate. 
All right. So then your first deployment was Afghanistan. Is that right? Correct. In 2007. Um, okay. So what was that like again? I mean, you now you go into a completely different landscape. You're going from, you know, a peaceful country where you grew up and then where you trained as well to, to now a war zone. So what was that like for a young Gurkha? Um, for me, you know, like everything, like for me was, you know, for the reputations and, you know, and I will just tell you one story that I have briefly covered on the book, for example, you know, we were working with, uh, with the Marines, uh, Royal Marines, um, you know, 40 commandos in Herrick 7. And one of my job as a, as an engineer commander was to clear this compound so that, um, you know, you, when we say clear this compound, we means, you know, the, the compound is free from ID bombs or any you know, detonating device. So I was doing that. And obviously my one of my, you know, corporal was like and sergeant were names. Hurry up. And I was like, look, I cannot hurry up, you know, and they were like, names, can you hurry up? And I was like, I just got so angry. I was like. I was, you know, there is a Valen. Valen is a, you know, a metal detector that detects, you know, IEDs or any bombs, any metal on the ground. So I just like threw that away and I was like, listen, you know, if you think that I'm scared of like doing this and if you think I'm, I'm doing it so slowly and methodologically because you think I'm scared, then there you go. I can just walk around without this, this Valen and all that. But the reason why I'm doing this job, you know, you know, 100% or methodologically is because if I miss something here and those like, you know, the, the Marine infantry unit comes in and if something detonates or if ID goes off, then, you know, we, you know, because of my carelessness or our team careless, carelessness, the whole reputation of the guy is going to get jeopardized. So listen up. And of course, after that, they all listen. But yeah, it was really humbling experience. I work with the commandos. And uh, before that, I wanted to join SAS after this tour. But after working with the with the Royal Marines, I kind of you know, prefer their ethos, and and I decided to go to to SBS. And um, for those uh, who are listening, just to give an example uh, between SAS and SBS in terms of military is, in SAS we got most of the 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 guys who passed into SAS SAS are from um, the the army background, whereas. The SBS, most of the guys who passed to the selection are from uh, the Marine background. Um, so that's kind of in a bit of sort. I think I'm, we're going to probably cover a bit more into that later on. Um, but yeah, they both are TA1 UKSF. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I definitely want to explore that because obviously SBS is more of a Marine background and Nepal is not known for its oceans. <laughs> so we'll explore that in a moment. Um, one thing I always ask every member of the military, I ask, you know, Jay and Staz and you know, everyone else that's come on. Um, with most of us being civilians, most of us, even if you're in the military, if you weren't deployed specifically into a combat zone, there's these polarizing, um, Kind of views that we get fed through television, whatever it is, either the very pro-war or the very anti-war. And to me, as you know, the more uh, members of military that come on, the more I realize that there are two things that you actually see as you know, as a soldier, as a sailor, whatever you know, whoever the person is. Um, one is that it seems to be this common denominator that wherever the war zone is, amongst all that fighting, are men, you know, fathers and mothers and children that are just trying to to get on with their life. But the other thing is usually they witness some sort of, you know, atrocity that then 
reinforces the fact that they are doing some good when they're over there. So did you have any kind of moments when you first deployed where you saw some of the horrific stuff that was going on by some of the extremists over there? Oh, yeah, massively, James. And of course, you know, we, we went on this war for, you know, reasons. And yes, a lot of people could have a different opinion on that. But I have been on the ground and, and I have seen some horrible stuff. Um, that we try to obviously, you know, stop, prevent from, you know, you know, in, or stopping that act which is against the humanity. And so, you know, and and, and specifically once you get into the Gurkhas and the special forces, we always, you know, make sure that you know who we go into our ident, you know, our, our target or everything is is identified, and there is a solid, legitimate, you know, bomb-proof evidence, and, and that's when we go. So. There's no doubt about you know, what I have done and 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 all and uh, yeah it's, it's for the it's for the better world which I believe in um, so but we are people and you know, everybody has got different opinions and all that but you know unless you are in that in that shoes and, and unless you have been there uh, I don't think you know you can really comment uh, but hey hey. yeah no exactly and I think that's an, it's an important point to underline is you know when I hear these stories. Yes, you are representing the UK or the US or Australia or wherever, you know, the, the person's from. But ultimately, when you're on the ground, you're protecting the Afghani people or the Iraqi people. And I think that's, that's a message that a lot of people lose. Yeah, yeah massively, mate. And then, you know, like there are situations where, you know, like, um, you know, like young kids been brought into to, to, to be, to be trained to be a terrorist. And that's like completely wrong, you know, where, you know, like a certain, you know, uh, terrorists, or, you know, those people, you know, training, you know, like, you know, young kids, you know, putting bombs on them and all that. I think, yeah, I think, but I don't really want to go in details about that, um, you know, but if that's okay. And I, I really wanted to talk about, you know, you know, what, you know, what my past is, you know, what, you know, um, you know, what I have done last year, because I'm, I cannot talk so much about the the special forces stuff because you know uh, you know I have yeah no no absolutely absolutely no I've just, I've, it's just an interesting perspective I think from the people that were on the ground you know but that's that's just one little thing I just want to touch on and move on now so um so so your journey into SBS then so there you are again from Nepal like I said not really exposed to a lot of um, aquatic activities so tell me about the journey in through there um. No other Gurkha had obviously made through the ranks of SBS, so that was really in you know, a tough challenge to start with because I would go there as an an alien, um, and everything what I have to do over there, I have to work twice harder to to prove myself because you know you you came from completely different background, and for me as well, you know it's not only about me, you know it's about the the reputations of you know those hundreds and thousands of Gurkhas, you know who. Who who has you know built their you know, name and reputations of bravery and loyalty? So um, of course I had to operate in, in extreme under pressure throughout my whole career. Um, but something you know that taught me massively also in terms of um, you know which we'll talk about you know Bremen Project Possible in, in a bit. But yeah, it was um, it wasn't easy, buddy. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Because, you know, the, the work cycle, the job cycle is like a washing machine cycle. You know, you've been basically you know, thrown around everywhere across the world. And one thing that you cannot do is you cannot fuck up. So, yeah, that's the level of, you know. <laughs> 
Well, and then something you touched on before with, you know, with the um, sweeping for ID story and there's something that seems to pan over and over again is the attention to detail. And whether it's, you know, my profession, the fire service or law enforcement or whatever it is, that seems to be a very, very important part of, you know, of, of earning the title professional. So again, you know, how, how much was that reinforced when you, when you leveled up to the SBS? Uh, 100%. You know, you, you've got to apply all that and maybe beyond that. So yeah, you know, that's why we are the best in you know, elite, you know, service in England or maybe in, even in the world. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Well, well, so you have an interesting story from within the SBS to actually getting to Everest. So I'd love to hear about how climbing started factoring into your service in special operations. <laughs> yeah. So basically, uh, I was 29 years old when I decided to go to Nepal to see, you know, the Everest. It's a trekking, by the way. But then once I started trekking, you know, you come through this beautiful village called Namche Bazaar. Um, and as you come through, then you see a massive mountain called Amadablam. It's so beautiful. It dominates the whole of the Kumbu Valley. Honestly, it's such an eye-catching, such a beautiful, it's amazing. And after that, I was like, wow, I just wanted to experience how it feels to be you know, standing on, on the summit of that mountain and, and, and see the world. So I asked my, obviously, instructor at that point, who was my guide, say, hey, can we climb? And he laughed, names that mountain is super technical. People who climb Everest can't even climb that. So anyway, long story short, I managed to convince him to climb another mountain, 6,200 meter peak. Uh, the way we did was we had no kit and equipment, so we uh, hired the kit in this village and um, we were taught how to wear crampons and use crampons uh, in the grass at this village. So we we're putting crampons and uh, walking, obviously, um, yeah, and after that, I, you know, eventually summited uh, Lobita East. And at that point, when I was on this mountain, what I realized was, when you come from Gurkha background, when you become like, you know, come from these special forces, when you have done things and been there, all that stuff, you think you are invincible. And when I went into the mountain, at that point, I just realized we are no one. It made me feel how small, you know, I am. But also equally, you know, I just love that, you know, the whole atmospheric um, challenging, the environmental challenge, like where you are struggling to breathe, you know. Um, yeah, it was it was awesome. But also the view once you get to the summit and all that. So that's what it, it got me into high in extreme high altitude mountain. And, and from that point, you know, whenever I had like a bit of leave, you know, coming from special forces background, it's always hard. Um so, yeah, I managed to do a bit of climbing here and there after that. Now, you know, with the, the Nepalese background, did you notice that your physiology was different than some other people that you climb with and that you were able to tolerate the altitude? Um, at that point, not really, because at that point, I just thought I'm, I'm UK Special Forces. I must be faster and, 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 and stronger than anybody else here. That was kind of my attitude, which was massively wrong. Uh, but I discovered, like, um, I had kind of a, a natural um, strength in terms of high-altitude mountaineering in 2014 when I climbed Daulagri, which is the world's seventh-highest mountain. Um, and I summited that mountain in just 14 days, Kathmandu to Kathmandu, without any prior acclimatization, leading more than 70% of the route. 
uh, when I was obviously in a trailblazing and all that. That's when I kind of realized. But just to give you an idea, at that point, I had no idea still. I was just planning towards, you know, climbing Everest one day and other other 1,000 meter peak eventually. Uh, but I was kind of, you know, improving my skills towards, you know, climbing without oxygen. Uh, but I was kind of, you know, collecting my, my experience at that stage. Yeah. So I know you, you ended up teaching climbing within special forces too. So when did that come in? So what happened was after Lobita East, uh, which, um, you know, which I just mentioned you about, I got back into SBS. I was in MPVS troop. That means, you know, you would take lead on, you know, parachuting and anything MPVS, watery stuff. Then I changed from that troop to mountain troop. And uh, eventually you know, I started working, you know, my way and all that. And um, yeah, I was, um, I was, um, when I, when I left SBS, I was one of the lead BAS role, uh, as in BAS operator. Uh, I was head of that, you know, kind of, you know, like, you know, teaching the, the special forces guys, you know, about, you know, um, extreme cold weather warfare and all that. So, yeah. And did you find that your climbing then made you even better when it came to your, you know, SBS activities? Um, well, you know, like it's a completely different stuff. You know, what we do in SBS is not extreme high altitude. We, what we do there is in extreme cold weather warfare. So um, it's a completely different skills, but at some point that does, you know, collapse. Um, as in like, um, there will be a few overlaps and all that. But yeah, uh, but obviously I was doing this in a high altitude mountaineering as my love and passion. So, but I was trying to bring that into, into SBS. And because with that incident in Nanga Parbat in, in 2011, when, you know, 11 climbers were killed by the terrorists, you know, we were, you know, nobody could go and save their lives. So I was kind of you know, looking into this, you know, if something like this happened, and I was kind of you know, working towards developing the, the capabilities and all that, but eventually, obviously, you know, I, I, I left, um, but yeah. That's very interesting. That was in the yeah, mountains of Afghanistan, is that right? It's in Pakistan. Oh, Pakistan, okay, yeah. In Singapore, but it, um, it happened in 2011. Um, it was a huge terrorist incident. So the other thing that I, uh, kind of springs to mind to me is, again, you were born in the, the tropical area, then you go to the UK, obviously you're, you're deploying to the Middle East. Where, where do you relate your ability to tolerate the cold? Because up to that point, you hadn't really been exposed to a lot of very, very cold areas. Um, well, when I went to the mountain troop, obviously I went to Norway and did loads of an extreme cold weather warfare training within the SBS. Um, but yeah, I think if you love doing something, you know, things would come naturally, I guess. <laughs> and then, so the speed element too. So I know we're going to talk about obviously the um, project, uh, project possible, and, and the the ridiculous speed that you did the uh, the peaks. When did you start noticing that you were just faster in general than a lot of climbers? Um, in 2017, I was one of the instructors for the Gurkhas, um, and, uh, to, to the Everest. And the mission was to put a first serving Gurkha on the summit of Everest. Okay. Technically I had done that in 2016, but you know, the wider military didn't know cause I was in special forces. Nobody knew about this anyway. So yeah, 2017, here we are. And I was, I was one of the instructor going over there. And what happened that season was, you know, 
in Everest, there is an official team normally who set the fixed lines to the summit. And a lot of people, you know, use that trailblaze, use that logistic, that, you know, that fixed lines to, to summit to the Everest, to the top. So that season, that didn't happen. Uh, and what it meant for me as an instructor and as a Gurkha and as a UK Special Forces operator was, one, as a Gurkha, whenever, you know, like in another chance, this will be our, like, if we fail on that one, it will be another third attempt that we will get another chance to go and climb Everest, you know? So that was no. And also, you know, like coming from the Gurkha background, everybody think, you know, Everest is in your back garden. You know, but it's, it's not. But there was a huge reputation on Rix as well. The second one was, you know, again, you know, this was the second time that we used, you know, British taxpayers' money to go and do this. And I don't think there will be ever third attempt. So I stepped up and uh, I formed my own team um, to to go and set these fixed lines. A combination of, you know, mostly Serpas and a couple of, you know, Gaika instructors. Yeah, went and obviously set the fixed lines, not opening the route for only our team, but the rest of the season's mountaineer. And immediately after that, um, obviously I came with the team to Kathmandu. Then I went back again to climb Everest. Lotse and Makalu, which I did in five days. And that's including stopping for two nights, partying in between. Otherwise, I could have done that in three days. And at that point, I realized I had so much to give into this mountaineering world. So that's where, you know, the, the bigger vision is to start coming into me. That's when I realized, you know, I was, um, you know, I was something different. I had something different. Uh, all right. And so the, the 2017 summit was basically two years later for the G200. Is that right? Yeah, 2017 summit was only two years later after I did my project possible. Right, yeah. Okay. Because um, the 2015, was that when they had the earthquake on Everest? 15 was, so the first time we attempted was 2015. The big earthquake came. Nobody's, you know, obviously made it to the top um, as the expedition were all cancelled. 2017 was the second time that, you know, we were back again. Right. So... Going back to just the SBS, one thing I kind of missed, I think it's very important, was, you know, you, you detailed this in the book, that you actually were shot in the face. So, you know, how how were you able to kind of overcome that injury and, and push forward? Uh, so I think we should leave that for the, for, the, for the readers to find in the book Beyond Possible, shall we? Beautiful. Yes, let's do that. I, I haven't got this chronologically down. So when was the first time you made a rescue on the mountain? Um, it was in 2016 when I went to this, you know, <laughs> super secret trip to, you know, Everest. Um, and this was the trip that I made a really last minute decision um, between the the tour, operational tour between, you know, Threta to Threta. So um, no one knew, not even my family other than, you know, my wife. Um, I went to Nepal, decided to climb Everest solo. Um, and on the way down, I rescued this female climber who was, you know, left behind to die by, you know, of course, you know, her team and guides. So I brought her down. And at that point, I was climbing. I take oxygen from Campo, but I was, um, uh, I was developing my skills towards to climb without it. But what happened from that point was I managed to rescue her from balcony, which is 1,450 meters. I did 500 meter worth of rescue at the Dehjan in just 90 minutes. That's super quick. Just to give you an example, 
it took two days for her in a team of you know five rescue members to get her down to camp two. So from that point, obviously, I decided to climb you know big mountains with oxygen after camp for or a high camp. But yeah, it was only in 2016, um, and um, I rescued her, got back into uh, you know Kathmandu, then to England, and within like literally a week of summiting Everest secretly. I was in Afghanistan kicking door. Nobody knew about it. So, yeah. <laughs> well, how, do, how does that look like? You know, what does that look like when when it's normally so slow and, you know, that her team had basically left her? You know, what were you doing differently that allowed you to make that rescue so rapidly? I'm Nimstai, and I... <laughs> <laughs> no, I what I have is like, um, being brutally honest, you know, I have this, you know, massive physical stamina. Uh, my mindset is, you know, you know, different, you know, I operate differently at, at the death zone. That's like my, my playground. And, you know, coming back, you know, from in you know, a girl and special forces background, I have never left anyone behind in, in, in the operations or in the battle. I'm not going to leave someone, you know, over there when, you know, it's in my, you know, in my zone. So I had to rescue. So, yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, then I know that, um, yeah, you, know, you you decided to make a transition out of SBS for a very kind of altruistic reason. So tell me about your journey to making the decision to transition out of the military. Okay. So 2018, I was appointed as, you know, head of in extreme cold weather warfare um, within the SBS. And one of my job is to obviously go out, do loads of, you know, find out about the climbing, mountaineering, find, you know, what these professionals are doing, find out new kit and equipment, all that, and pass that knowledge to our fellow operators. In process of that, what I approached to SBS at that point was, can I go and climb top five highest mountain in just 80 days? Um, because, you know, I had loads of in the leave ode and all that, and um, but then the decision was no purely because of um, of the risk factors, you know, in K2, one in four dies, Kanchanjanga nearly that. And, you know, of course, I wasn't just climbing one mountain, but I was doing a pretty much mountain marathon. So it makes sense from, you know, of course, the defense. Um, so they said no. And I was like, okay. But at that point, when I say, when I put my, you know, cheat in, um, I got invitation from, you know, SAS to like, you know, join their regiment. And certainly they had a you know, better job opportunity for me and all that. Um, but yeah, you know, for me, it wasn't, you know, you know, that, you know, my loyalty lies in, a, you know, in the blood. Coming from the Gurkha background, you know, whatever I do, you know, it will have an impact on, on my future generations. Um, so I took my loyalty um, and uh, over, you know, my job security, pensions and everything. And um yeah, and after that, I resigned, and I, I was like, since I'm resigning anyway, I got, like, time to myself. I don't have to get permission to do things and all that. I'm my own boss, so why only climb five mountains? I'm going to climb all the 14. So I Googled in the, in the in the internet. I found out you know, the fastest time was, you know, nearly eight years. Uh, then I, you know, planned all that out, and, yeah, I thought, you know, I could do under seven months. So that's the journey. <laughs> Yeah, well, when when you told that story, so you gave up your pension, and I can totally relate because I retired out the the fire service and basically 
took the money that I had and put it back into into doing this for exactly the same reason. I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I wasn't climbing 14 mountains, but it was I realized I could do more good leaving the environment that I was in and being a voice for the people rather than staying in that in that profession. Yeah, true, buddy. And, you know, like for me, I never joined, you know, in SBS to be a general or to make millions. You know, it was pure for, for love for the job and, and, and a pure like passion for the job, uh, you know, because, you know, I wanted to be part of that group so much. And you know, at that point, I even said, you know, if I just pass this selection, if I'm good enough, I'm happy to work for free. So that much, you know, like I wanted to be part of that group. So. Yeah, and then for me, I have, I had, I felt like I have done enough for the for the crown in in a country. I have served sixteen years. All my time doing the military, where you know, at that period where the war was kicking up all across the globe. So I had a really, really hardcore, you know, military, you know, duty as well. So, but after that, it was you know for different reason. It was for something else that you know I can. I can reach out to to the wider community um, and all that. So, yeah. Beautiful. Well, the the project that you that you started planning was um, Project Possible. So tell me tell me about the recipients. Like who who are you trying to raise money and or awareness for with that project? So everything what I do in life, I need to find a purpose or a goal or something you know that really means must to me. So when I come with this idea, you know, of course I need a purpose. Why I'm doing this? And 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 it was very simple for me. I wanted to show the world that what is humanly possible, you know, because at that point no one could even imagine, and I couldn't even imagine that before that until 2018. It was it was beyond my imagination as well. So I somehow it came you know into my imagination that I could do it. So I wanted to obviously show the world that. You know, if you can imagine something and if you really put your heart, mind and soul into that, you can do it. Secondly, I wanted to raise the, the the name of the Nepalese climbers who have been frontier of all the Himalayan peaks, you know, but they never got the right credit. Um, and thirdly, I wanted to raise the awareness about, you know, climate change and global warming, which is very you know close to my heart. And I really believe in those um, you know, three purposes, and that's what it gives me strength, fire, and everything, buddy. Yeah. Well, I know that your mentor, your climbing mentor that you actually lost in 2015 was extremely passionate about climate change. So while you have a captive audience here, tell me what, you know, from the, from the Nepalese um, perch, what you guys are seeing regarding to climate change? Um, there has been a massive change. Like, for example... Um, I was in Amadablam, which is the most beautiful, iconic peak of, uh, of Himalayas. Um, my first climb when I went there at Cam 1, we could just, you know, grab the snow, melt it, drink water, cook food and all that. When I went there again in 2018, there was no snow. So we had to carry like gallons of water because... The water is heavy, right? You know, one liter is one kg. So when we had to carry like gallons of water, you know, into this extreme like root altitude, I was like, oh my God, that was so painful, but equally so sad. And that's when I had the true realization of, wow, this is this is real. Again, you know, like I was in Daulagri, my first 8,000 meter peak in 2014. 
I went back there in 2019 for, you know, for this project and the whole of the glacier was melting. You know, I didn't believe that in just in a matter of few years, you could see such a huge change. Um, and you know, if you look, if if you now forget those what I have seen, and just like if you look into the, in the scientific, you know, figures and all that, if you look, you know, the Kumbu Valley, if we lose the glacier of, you know, like Kumbu Icefall and all that, it's gonna have an effect on millions of life. And um, and this is something is really, you know, worrying. So I really wanted to obviously raise, you know. Um, the awareness about it through my channels. Um, so yeah, and that's what I've been doing. Well, that's beautiful. There's something that I've talked about a few times on here. I I lived in Los Angeles for a little while, and I always found it insanity that you would have all these kind of anti climate change you know, you know, views. And my thing was, well, we're in a city where you can't even see 200 meters ahead of you. So rather than even worry about, you know, the, the climate change element, why don't we just work on what we can see, which is the, you know, the product of emissions. You see the smokestacks all over the country that are spew, you know, spewing out toxic gases. Let's work on what we can see. And I guarantee you will probably have a knock on effect on climate change as well. Yeah, that's so true, buddy. And um, I just was that, you know, uh, a documentary by Sir David Attenborough. Uh, and, you know, and, and the message he sends was so powerful, like, you know, whatever we do all as a human, if we put, you know, nature in a two hour heart and make decisions around that, we can make changes. We don't, you know, and then it's only like when there is a bigger goal um, and when there's a bigger project, it's not the big things that make difference. It's the smaller things. And if everyone is doing those little smaller things, that's what it makes the huge change. So, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, then you mentioned 14 peaks, but you didn't mention how, you know, what the record was up to that point and then the time period that you were hoping to scale all 14. So what was the current record and then what was your hope? So um, the, the record was, you know, I think is seven years, 11 months and 14 days. And that record by was held by, you know, Jersey Kuskuza. And a Korean climber, Kim Jang-ho, tried to break his record, and he broke that record by only, you know, less than 10 days or something like that. Um, yeah, so when I planned into like seven months, it was crazy because, you know, if you look into this idea, for, for those who doesn't know these big mountains and all, you know, people take two months to climb one big mountain, uh, one 8,000 meter peak uh, and all that. So no one could really imagine but being able to change that perspective into this, you know, new, you know, era of you know extreme high altitude mountaineering, uh, I think it's quite humbling, buddy. Um, and and that's kind of you know, what I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, you had self belief, and obviously, you know, you you'd seen what you were capable of at that point. But I know that proposing it to sponsors was a challenge for you. So, what was the fundraising element like for you? But the fundraising was one of the toughest thing I have ever done after writing this book. <laughs> so, yeah, at that point, um, I still had one year planning uh, to, to do before I get into this project. The, the whole, you know, project had two planning. One was operational, which was my, my bag, my perk, my expertise, and there was another one which was fundraising. The fundraising part was, you know, led by one of my friends, 
And just like three months prior to the project, you know, uh, I was told that there is zero pound on the pro on on the project fund. So after that, I decided to take the lead by myself. And um, yeah, nobody would believe it. They were like, "Okay, Nims, if you think like you know you are that badass climber, mountaineer, why haven't we heard about you before?" I was like, "I just told you I was in special forces. You know, I didn't even had a Facebook. I didn't have any, any Instagram. So how how are you gonna hear about me?" And then. Then some would say, oh, there, the, the previous two records are nearly eight years and you were just trying to say you're going to do that in seven months. So people were making the joke out of it and all that. Yeah, mate. And just to give you an idea, before I set off from London Heathrow to, to Kathmandu, Nepal for this project, I only had 5% of the total fund. It was that hard. And I still remember when people were so negative and all that. I was driving in this motorway in M3, and, um, and given the fact um, I have operated in a very, very hostile, you know, stressful, multi-layer stressful environment, and, and that doesn't, like, overwhelm me. But on this one, fundraising, I was driving on this motorway, and I just had tears coming from my eyes. I had to pull off and obviously had, a, had to have a word for myself get a grip you know and then I drove off and and, and 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 the reason why it gives me strength was the purpose why I was doing this mission but yeah it was it was tough buddy and uh, the funding started coming later on from the uh, you know from the project through sponsorship a lot of people you know supported through in you know, a GoFundMe page as well once I started you know climbing in the way that I said I would climb and once I started in the rescues you know all that Beautiful. Well, just as a tangent with that, you know, so many members of the military I've had on, and you know, myself, my profession, you know, this, all the all the tactical professions, um, there there's a toll. There's a mental toll to what we see. Is a mental toll to what some of us have to do. Um, and then you know, a lot of times that manifests when you transition out of the profession because that group that you were in, that tight knit tribe that you belong to, now you're on the outside. Well, with your journey, not only you're on the outside, but now you have the the added frustration of having served your country and yet not now, you know, having so many problems trying to raise money for this this climb that you know is going to do so much good. So did did you have either then or later on in your, uh, you know, the last few years, have any elements where, you know, you, you, you saw the ripple effect mentally of, you know, the, the service that you've given? Um, nobody, uh, because for me, you know, I think um, it was different. Um, and of course, you know, uh, I see a lot of friends, you know, having a, a ripple effect. But at the moment, no, because, you know, everything what I did was uh, was by the book. Um, you know, it was something that I really loved doing it. And uh, there was a there was a purpose and all that. So, yeah, I'm I'm OK, thankfully. Well, good. And I think that I've expected that answer. And the reason being is because, as you said, you had a purpose. And that seems to be the key for people transitioning out, you know, healthily is that they go from one purpose to the next. And obviously, you know, the climb seemed to be that good transition. 100%. Beautiful. All right. Well, then, so you, you know, you were still working on the fundraising. So lead me through to Braemont because I want to give them some some airtime too, because they, they seem to be, you know, well, inverse, uh, well engrossed in, you know, your your uh, climb obviously with through dark so let's talk about how they came in and and you know got behind your project so you know 
when I finished the first project and all that, you know, a lot of people started believing that I could really do it, you know, because, you know, at first people didn't believe in all that. But on the second phase, when I was like, um, you know, struggling for the, for the fund, uh, Bremen advanced me in a, you know, roughly in a 200K. Um, and that allowed me to do the second phase, uh, in, in a peaceful manner. Um, yeah, and then through that, guys, you know, of course, they have been, you know, like, you know, friends. Um, they have been supporting me with the clothing um, and all that. Um, and I'm, I'm quite proud to represent them and all that. Uh, but, yeah, there were, like, great sponsors, like, in Ann Middleton, you know, who, who supported this project, you know, give me, you know, sponsorship. Um, and, he, yeah, he didn't even ask for anything, not even like one social media post and all that. So, so there were some really great supporters out there, um, like Selexo, Osprey Europe. I had like tons of, you know, like um, sponsors because um, nobody could, you know, fund the whole project. So uh, and I must not forget, my, you know, half of the project fund came from the crowdfunding, actually people giving you know, five pounds, 10 pounds, and a lot of people were giving that as well. So that's why I keep saying it was a people's project. Beautiful. Well, then back to the climbs then. So kind of walk me through that and then where you not only did it in in a certain time, but also that was including other rescues that you made. Yeah, you know, for me, of course, that was the mission. The mission was there, but, you know, before mission, you know, of course, there is a humanity uh, and there is a culture and there is a a true spirit of who really I am. And uh, for me, I couldn't really walk away with not risking people or, or walking past the, the needy people. So I did in you know, the first rescue was on Annapurna, um, you know, where I was about to go to climb Daulagri, my second mountain to tick off. But then I abandoned that, you know, that agree, um, to go and, you know, rescue Dr. Chin. Um, the side effect was massive because, you know, my team in Dawla agree because they have been waiting, you know, for a while. They said I was never going to come. So they almost like, you know, closed the camp and left. Um, but yeah, and the story goes on. Um, like in, for example, Kanchenjunga, I hadn't slept for like six days. Normally people, you know, go to the summit from, you know, sleeping at camp one, camp two, camp three and all that. But I, I didn't have that luxury. So I was just racing from base camp to the summit of this, you know, massive mountain, world third highest mountain, Kanchenjunga. And at that as well, I had to give, um, you know, me and my team, Mi'kma, David, myself and Gesman, we rescued four climbers and we had to give oxygen at 8,450 meters. And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, you climb with oxygen and all that. But this is the main reason why I do it. You know, I get my oxygen to to save the life of these people. And if you look into the, the science, physics beyond that, coming off oxygen at 8,450 meters and doing a rescue, which is like equally dragging a car at the sea level, is is hardcore than any mountains you climb without oxygen and all that. So... Yeah, um, but the whole thing about this rescue is about, you know, not letting your core value and principle go in a very tough, challenging conditions. But also you've got to know your abilities as well. You know, you don't want to be, you know, one of the stupid, you know, person who doesn't know your ability, try to rescue somebody else, and then you become other, other casualty. And then you, you kind of, you know, like made that problem even more. So it's all about a dynamic calculated risk assessment, um, given the whole circumstances and environment. 
Yeah, and obviously you detail yeah the the climbs and the rescues in the book, and again I can't I can't mention that enough. Um, but it also highlights again that altruistic element you know that that you have where you're not carrying oxygen so that you can be the best, you can be the fastest, but you're carrying you're lugging that tank up on the off chance that you have to make a rescue. So you either have the strength or you're able to to give oxygen to to the victim. So I think that speaks volumes. Yeah, mate. You know because at the end of the day you you got to learn from your experience okay whenever we go in the target whenever we go in the mission there's always debrief we don't only talk about what went well and high five we just talk we also talk about what went wrong as well and what are the lessons learned and for me the lesson learned from my first Everest expedition in 2016 was climbing 8000 meter peak is not about ego you know if you can climb all this mountain with the value and principle then you know that's that's the one for me anyway so i i learned something from that expedition and i carried that with me to this point and all that it's all about you know learning from the experience and and making you know what it fits with you as a human um as an individual as well and 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 i'm not there to please you know the world and all that nobody can do that you know because we all are human we all are different but, you know, as long as you have purpose, you learn from your mistakes, you learn from your experience, you always will be successful in what you do uh, because you are always learning and adapting. Beautiful. Just to point out, one of, one of my favorite parts of the book was the the very end, the lessons learned at, at the back. And it, it ties in all the stories. But, you know, you've got these key points that really make you think about, you know, um, leadership and ownership and all these other areas. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, like the the whole thing with the book, as I said, is like, you know, even covering the the leadership in my team members. I normally when people go to the big mountains and all, they will have somebody else who has summited that mountain because you know he can show you the route. There's like you know there's danger, you know, because once you you summited, you kind of know the route. But I didn't take that approach. I put my guys because they were rotating, you know, between summit to the summit. So I put these guys into the mountain that they haven't climbed before. So they also have the objective as well. So when you put, you know, the interest of your team members, you know, into your heart as well, and that gives such a powerful gesture. Um, yeah, the whole leadership style is, is, is a completely different um, and all that. And I think that's also one of the reasons why, you know, the whole, you know, project was successful. Yeah, well, speaking of the, of the Nepalese people, so here we are now recording this in, you know, 2020. Um, what has been the impact of COVID on, you know, the, the climbing uh, environment and therefore the the economic side for the Nepalese? Um, my, you know, good question. You know, a lot of people in Nepal, the climbing community, they massively rely, you know, rely uh, on Everest expedition. That's what the biggest expedition. That's where they make money. Um, you know, all the guides and, and of course, you know, the whole family depend on that, you know, expeditions and, um, and all that. But with COVID, all the Himalayan expeditions were canceled this year. Um, so it was, it was really tough time, you know, and I did what I could do to help them. You know, I kind of had that GoFundMe page and we we're like just buying food for the people. A lot of people have donated on that one. You know, thank you so much to those who have donated and all that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really tough time. You know, it's, it's a tough time for everybody else. Um, I know we all have our own, own problems and all that. But just in relation to, to the climbing community, um, 
Uh, thank you so much to, to everyone who had supported. Um, yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, then um, lead me through then what made you decide to write a book and then what that process was like. I just finished a book myself so I can relate. <laughs> but what was your experience? Why I wanted to write the book, my, this was one of the, the strengths that I had in when I, when I was almost dying on the 1,000 meter peak, when I was running out of my energy and all. I wanted to tell the story by myself. I wanted to do the justice to, to the story. I didn't want you know, somebody else writing my story on the guess, you know, on like assumption or in the imagination. Because what I have written in this book is a statement. No one can argue with this. Everything what I have written is backed up by either video evidence or anything. And then, and everything hasn't been even like, you know, when people do something, people make it bigger. And I, honestly, believe me, I have, I've tried to play down as much as I can. And, and everything is like, like there, but to be able to tell this story from my own perspective, you know, it was really, really humbling experience. But to be honest, buddy, the writing book is hardcore. It is so hard. I have read this book now nine times. Um, and um, I must say I'm very excited now because I have put so much work and as you know, I give 100% in everything that I do in my life, and I and that's what I have done with the book. And this book is not about you know mountain; it's about relating you know yourself about climbing your own mountains and how you could achieve you know your own new possible in relation to how I cope with the problem, how I mitigate with them, what my thought process are, um, and all that. So I hope it will be it will be you know people's book as well. No, well, like I said, I thought it was fantastic, and and there's many times now in conversations on here, I've I've spoken to people who have have redefined something in life, you know, and then once they do, then behind them is a bunch of people that then start to to kind of match the same thing. But it's that first pioneer, that first person that shows other people that something is possible, and I think that's what I got from this. Is you know, again, like you said, the definitely the kindness, compassion element, which I think is is beautiful, but also that that belief that self-belief like i don't care what anyone says i fucking know that i can do this so i'm just going to show you yeah thank you buddy and then that's what exactly it is and that's what exactly you know the, the beyond possible is about you know you know find your own mission if you believe in that give your heart mind and soul into it and then just go for it and you'll be successful you you will make the impossible possible now, what was it like for you once you'd written it? Did, did you were you able to kind of breathe a sigh of relief? Now you were able to kind of offload that story. Um, I have, but obviously, you know, I'm not that kind of a person who can just go on a, on a beach holiday and then relax. You know, I can't do that. So, I have been on a mission, and I have been learning how to speed fly. I have been like, you know, full on, buddy. I'm planning on, you know, like the the, the next future project and all that. So it's full on mission. Because you know I'm, I'm I'm quite new to this mountaineering world to be honest. I've just I just became a professional climber only a year ago. Before that, you know, my profession was in a tier one UK in a special forces. So I got a lot to do, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so are there any big plans? Is there is there a, a next um, adventure that you're hoping to to share? 
Um, I cannot really say that now, but it's, it is something massive, you know, equally big. Um, and yeah, stay tuned. I don't doubt it for a moment. <laughs> All right. Well, again, like I said, the book is incredible. And I think what's so good is you, know, you are the quiet professionals, you know, and, and again, I'm not trying to draw anything out from from any of your service that, that shouldn't be out there. But when, you know, when men and women who have these powerful stories are able to put it, you know, in writing, whatever they're allowed to to tell about, it really, really resonates with people because there's so much, you know, shallow fiction out there. And yet these real life stories that, that many of whom have had on the show are so much more powerful than most storytellers can can make up anyway. So I can't advocate, you know, highly enough for for your book. Thank you, buddy. You know, that's that's really kind of you. And uh, thank you for your honest feedback as well. No problem. Well, I want to transition some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, We'll talk about where people can find the book in just a moment. But is there a book that someone else has written that you love to talk about or recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, nothing really, buddy, because I'm going to be brutally honest. I haven't read any book. Sorry. <laughs> no, no problem at all. What about that's it? Why, my writing book was really crazy and all that, you know, because, uh, yeah, the whole life in, you know, Scripture Forces – you're busy running around and all that. And, and straight after that, I was into this project and, and obviously, yeah, full on. Uh, but I can definitely tell you, you know, who, who have been my inspiration, um, you know, from, you know, what I have been, you know, seeing and, and all that is, you know, definitely Muhammad Ali and, you know, Usain Bold. Um, you know, these two guys have been, you know, massive inspiration for me. Beautiful. Yeah. I think that's the problem with, with, you know, your profession, even my profession is there's so many, facts and skills to master that I found in most of my fire service career, I was reading textbooks and reading medical books and, you know, all those things. So there wasn't yeah. a lot of time for other books, really. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. So then what about a, a film? Any films or documentaries that you've loved? Um, I cannot talk about, oh, you mean like, you know, that I love? Yeah, tonight. that you love. Nothing secret. <laughs> I, I watched, you know, like the, the Last Dance by obviously, you know, Michael Jordan. It was awesome. Um, yeah. And then you mentioned David Attenborough's uh, documentary as well. Yeah, I did watch that as well in a couple of days ago. That's like amazing. Yeah. Beautiful. My uh, my sister works for the BBC and she she edits. So I'm hoping this is the absolute pipe dream. But I'd love to get him on one day. That would be incredible. Wow. We that shall would be, see. That would be awesome. <laughs> All right. So the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, is in like, you know, who I recommend to come on the ne next podcast? Is that your question? Yeah, just as an interview. Then it can be, again, anyone. It doesn't have to be specifically what we've discussed today. Anyone on planet Earth that you would you, you think would be a good person for us to listen to. Um, did you speak with Jay, Jay Morton? Um, yes, so Staz and Jay were both on um, a little while ago. You took their 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 uh, clothing through dark up the up the mountain, didn't you? Okay, yeah, and basically, you know, like if you can, you know, bring Ann Middleton. You know, he's he has such a positive mindset and all that. So yeah, get him. Brilliant. I shall. Thank you so much. All right. So then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find the book and where to find you, um, what do you do to decompress? <laughs> I go and do in extreme sports where I'm literally living my life in, in the moment. You know, if I mess up, if I fuck up, I die. And, and that's what I do to, to decompress. Beautiful. Which sport specifically? 
uh, anything may there is there's so many things you know climbing peak mountains or climbing in extreme in a great mountains is in like grading or even speed flying yeah all that kind of stuff beautiful love it yeah it's hard not to be in the moment when you almost die <laughs> all right so then the the very last question then so where can people find the book first um so basically if you are following on my instagram at nimstai there's a link you can just find it from there or you know you can find that from in you know, the watery stones in a imagine yeah but the the easiest thing for now you know if you're listening is you know just you know type nimstai on instagram or facebook there's a link uh, on the bio and uh, yeah i hope you will you know enjoy reading it Absolutely. Well, Nims, I want to say thank you so much. It's been a, a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast today. Mate, thank you so much to you as well you know, for having me.